0: Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, the midterms are almost upon us, the most consequential in a generation. How one organization is working to get the vote out and how you can help. For most of the country, there is a swing Congressional District within 50 miles. Here
1: in Brooklyn, uh, the nearest one is actually in Brooklyn.
0: And then, the rise of hate crimes. We'll talk about the racist attack overshadowed by pipe bombs in Pittsburgh.
2: All it took for this dramatic increase in hate crime, all it took for this dramatic uh, explosion in open white supremacy was one presidential campaign to pull back the cover.
0: And finally, what reality TV can teach us about race, class, and the human condition?
3: The other thing I was interested in were these images, these representations like reality television and trashy reality television that I argue were doing some incredibly subversive work in terms of depictions of women, um, depictions of masculinity.
0: With only a few days before the midterms, canvassers across the country will be working feverishly to get out the vote in the crucial districts in an effort to flip the house. And while these are undoubtedly stressful times, what's refreshing is that you don't have to leave the region to get involved. Look no further than the tri-state area. Here to tell us more about some nearby canvassing opportunities for this weekend is John Mallow, senior advisor at the Get Out the Vote nonprofit Swing Left. Thanks for coming on 112BK, John. Thank you for having me. It's so much fun to have you. John, can you tell me about some of the races you guys are involved in right now and how are you getting people involved, like voters?
1: So Swing Left is involved in raising money and volunteer capacity mm-hmm. in about 84 districts across the country.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For most of the country, there is a Swing congressional District within 50 miles. Right. Here in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. the nearest one is actually in Brooklyn. Really? It's a small part of southern Brooklyn near the Verrazano Bridge and Staten Island. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing Democrat named Max Rose running in this district. Uh, he's a veteran with a purple heart. He is 31. Mm-hmm. He's super compelling. He, I think we've
0: had Max on the show before.
1: He's great, or, I, or yeah. I'm a fan. Yeah. And and he has a real chance of winning, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. It, it is true that Staten Island, which is the majority of the district, mm-hmm. is more Republican than the rest of the city. But there are more d- registered Democrats in Staten Island than there are registered Republicans. Wow. Um, it's just that there hasn't been as much turnout historically. Mm-hmm. And he's a great, compelling candidate who I think has a chance to win in the district. Right. I can tell you from personal experience that I went canvassing there, and I shot a video uh, with this amazing guy who was mm-hmm. also canvassing. And some voters were receptive, some weren't. Right. But there was some who said things like, I'm Republican, I don't like to cross party lines, but mm-hmm. this year I'm not happy with the way things are going. I'm not happy with Dan Donovan, who's the current uh, representative right. from that district, who's voted with Trump something like 89% of the time. Right and they may not be happy with the larger national sort of Republican platform, Mm -hmm. and they're open to crossing party lines. So for somebody like me, or Swing Left, whose focus is to flip the house, there's a real opportunity, and it's literally in the borough.
0: What can someone expect of the experience of canvassing in a place like that with Swing Left?
1: Well, the opportunities that we're trying to connect people with are Primarily canvassing and mm-hmm. and secondarily fo- phone banking. You can take the subway to these districts. There are also a lot of districts in northern New Jersey right. um, that have really interesting and varied races that are also competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, those you need to drive to, but they're still close. You your canvassing, you go to the ca- the campaign office. Now it's done with apps. Mm-hmm. So you'll download an app on your phone and they'll give you a set of addresses that you are going to go try to contact voters at. Wow. And it comes into your, I've done it, it's like it, it comes into this app and the app allows you to input information about, a lot of times it's not home. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's home but not available, other times right. it's home, planning to vote, home, not sure who they're voting for. Mm-hmm. Um, in the get out the vote period, which is the next few days, right, the message will shift a little to are you voting Tuesday because people have, will be more likely to have made decisions about that. Mm-hmm. You'll also be given Literature about the candidate and other information about voting in that district that you right. can distribute to people. Things like where's your polling place or how mm-hmm. you could get to your polling place. There's many studies that have shown that face-to-face conversations with voters are the most effective way mm-hmm. to convince someone. Mm-hmm. But some people I know are like they appear to be having the time of their lives going that out is knocking on doors. Interesting. It's cool. You talk to people who aren't necessarily like you. Right. Although. In most cases, if you're canvassing for a Democrat, you're going to known Democrats or either independent or unstated people. They're not sending you to Republicans. What you are trying to do is inform people about the race and Mm -hmm. find people who are either undecided or are non-voters or haven't totally made up their plans um, or are Democrats but need a reminder anyway.
0: Yes, that you need to show up.
1: And if if we can do that, I think we can Mm – I mean – I'm partisan, like I'm a Democrat, right? If we can get more, there are enough of us Mm -hmm. to win if we get people to the polls.
0: When we canvass heavily in an area, what does that end up looking like for the political candidates or the political party canvassed for in that area?
1: One of the reasons that we think this many districts across the country are in play is Mm -hmm. that the special elections that have happened this year have been promising for Democrats. Mm -hmm. So. For example, a Democrat named Connor Lamb won the special election um, in a district that it wasn't clear he was going to win, but he won by a a number of hundreds of votes. Wow! So in many of these districts, these are going to be very, very close. Mm -hmm. And in that district, there were hundreds of thousands of phone calls and door knocks made. right? Right. So if you look at sort of like the number of voter contacts that happen, they far, far exceed the number of votes that these races are decided on. Right. And. They're making the decisive difference, like, if wow. you, and and it it's true in many of these districts. Like, you know, there's polling in many of these northern New Jersey districts that suggests mm-hmm. they're in play. People are either uh, neck and neck or within the margin of error. You know, Swing Left is has developed a bunch of tech tools that are really making it easier to find opportunities to do this kind of voter contact work. Right. So if you go on SwingLeft.org, there's a take action page, or mm-hmm. there's a get involved page, or there's a donate page. There are all these different pages, but basically right. it puts you into this web interface that will show you all of the highest impact things you can do nearest Mm -hmm. to
0: whatever zip code you enter. Thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. You're very welcome. Pipe bombs and a massacre in Pittsburgh were pretty much all we had the bandwidth to talk about last week in America. So you had to be paying close attention to hear about another dreadful crime that occurred. A white man with a gun tried to gain entry to a predominantly black church in Louisville, Kentucky, suburb. But the doors were locked. So he headed to a nearby supermarket where he encountered Maurice Stallard, a black man unknown to him, and shot him multiple times. He then went to the parking lot and shot Vicki Lee Jones, there were reports that another white man with a gun confronted the shooter, who then said, whites don't kill whites. Kentucky prosecutors have not charged the killer with hate crimes. To learn a little bit more about this event in the context of racially motivated murders in American history, we're joined on the phone by Laurie Daniel Favors, General Counsel at the Medgar Evers Center on Law and Social Justice. Laurie, thanks for taking the time today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, it was already a crazy news week when the shooting in Kentucky occurred. Um, When and how did you first hear about it, and what were your immediate thoughts?
2: You know, I actually heard about it on Twitter, Uh (laughs) Um, and I was uh, preparing to do some interviews on another matter and started seeing what was happening. Um, You know, a lot of times Twitter, and and black Twitter in particular, is is often at the forefront of of these types of issues, and then the news media kind of follows. And so Uh um, I had seen what was going on there, um, and, you know, it's... It was one of those. Oh my God, here we go again. I was mm-hmm. reminded of the church and the incident in in Charleston, and so mm-hmm. it was definitely um, a reminder of just how far we have not come, and mm-hmm. it was very scary, very scary.
0: Laurie, where does this fit into the long history of racial violence against Black people in America, and are these acts still so commonplace that there's a desensitization?
2: Yeah, you know, and it's it's funny, because when you think about the history of violence against black people, racially motivated violence against black people... Um there does tend to sometimes be almost a numbness that can occur because Mm -hmm. they are so frequent. You know, typically we are dealing with uh, violence, uh, state-sanctioned violence in the form of police brutality, Um, and and that can even have a numbing effect. But when it's vigilante violence, when it's individuals, um, in light of what's happening politically around us, in light of the current ethos that is really swirling um, around our society right now, it it is at one time numbing, but it's also, for those of us who, who are familiar with that history. And we know, you know, how Reconstruction was violently ended with racial terrorism. We Mm -hmm. know how Jim Crow um, was violently aggressive in reducing black rights to almost back to slave status. And when we know that the Supreme Court gave judicial cover for individual vigilante violence, for state-sanctioned violence. It can, one right. on one hand, be numbing, and on the other hand, so alarming that it can make you start thinking, okay, how how far can this go? And if we're right. going back to where we have already been, what does that mean for our society? What does that mean for our community as African-descendant people? Yes. Um, you know, one thing I've said is, unfortunately, we are dealing with people who have a history of enslaving completely, wholly independent, free people, mm-hmm. and then building a multi-century economy based off of that. So we're we're not in unknown territory, and the fact that we are this is so familiar. I think that's what makes it that much more alarming. Oof.
0: Um, Now, Kentucky statutes don't allow for homicides to be tried as hate crimes. And even if the judge decided to add the hate crime um, clause to his judgment, it doesn't add any extra time for the perpetrator. So what's the significance of it officially being called a hate crime?
2: So it depends on your state, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And the challenge is that—so in in a state like New York, New York City in particular, Mm -hmm. we have really good hate crime legislation. And and this is a state and this is a city where hate crimes are prosecuted um, both locally and on the federal level in the Eastern District and the Southern District of New York. So we have an aggressive— form of legislation that allows for that. Depending on the state you're in, you may or may not um, even have a hate crime statute on the books, right? right? or your hate crime statute may be so limited, as in the case of Kentucky, where it includes things that are not homicide, right? does not actually include a racially motivated homicide or, or killing. And so, one, we have to think about what was in the minds of the legislators at the time that they passed and drafted this legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, two, we have to recall that we are now in an era where Mm-hmm because of the overabundance in weaponry in the hands of people who may or may not have mental health issues, people who may or may not be able to control their anger, their emotion, mm-hmm. and they're able to sort of just whip out uh, literally an AR-15, a weapon of mass destruction, and not be prosecuted with the hate crime, that really speaks to the notions about race and about justice within each particular state. Mm-hmm. So in, th- in the case of Kentucky, a hate crime designation would only occur if the judge made that determination at sentencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't necessarily add any extra state time, but it may be useful if the judge wants to deny probation of, of the parole board uh, upon uh, incarceration, wants to defer parole. That's wow. all a matter of how their statute was drafted. The person in this particular case, mm-hmm. Gregory Bush, he may face federal hate crime charges, um, and you know he may face federal civil rights violations, right. uh, but that's at a later stage. And quite frankly, um, I'm not very optimistic. Mm. I'm just I'm, I'm sadly not very optimistic about where that case is going, and a number of others as well.
0: Is it because of our current um, DOJ, or is there another reason why um, you're not feeling super optimistic about the chances of the federal government bringing a hate crime charge on this down on this case?
2: Um, so I'm going
0: to say yes to all of the above. <laughs> mm, all right. Yeah. That's all we needed. Um, <laughs> now, there's been an uptick in hate crimes since Trump took office. We yeah. know that's the case. Any, yeah. like, You could just look at the numbers and see that that's a fact. Mm-hmm. But can we draw any useful connections? Like, is it actually useful at this point to be drawing the connections between what this administration, what this president does and says, and how hate crimes are rising in the United States.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think, and and we can even look to historical precedent for this. You know, Mm -hmm. the original movie, Birth of a Nation, came out in 1915, and the president at the time then filmed it. It was the first movie to be filmed in the White House. Mm -hmm. Um, The movie went on to become literally what we now call Hollywood blockbusters. And as a result, you saw Klan membership dramatically and exponentially increase. When we're Mm -hmm. talking about the hate crimes uh, that we're currently experiencing, um, I believe the Southern Poverty Law. Center has noted that just in the first, I want to say, six months after the election, mm-hmm. they got more notifications and reportings of hate crime instances than they typically get within an entire year. Wow. We know that hate crimes are increasing primarily against Black people, against Muslims, against immigrants, and we also know that the top three places where they're ha- where they're occurring is the workplace. Mm-hmm. it's K through 12 institutions and it's the university so all of the institutions where we're supposed to have enlightened thinkers people who have you know matriculated through some sort of educational process and hopefully that educational process will prevent that type of, you know, of, of hate crime outburst. Those are actually the institutions where we're seeing the hate crimes increase the most. Right. Um, we saw this when President Trump announced his presidential campaign with yep. a racial screed against Mexicans and against mm-hmm. you know, all host of non-white people, and as he has now identified himself as a nationalist, as he has you know, decided that there are very good people on both sides, you know, mm-hmm. I'm gonna Andrew Gilliam, and say, you know, I don't have to say whether you're a racist or not. The racists believe you're a racist. Listen. And so that is empowering them and energizing them and giving them fodder. I mean, we can look at David, folks like David Duke, the commentary yes. they have made. Where they have said, you know, I don't care what else this president does. Essentially, like, he's on our side, and we're going to interpret this as we so wish. Yes. And, you know, I think it's one thing I always like to point out is that we have to really consider the fact that we have had, if you, if you count the Civil Rights Act of, of 1965, the Fair Housing Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of Mm -hmm. the mid 60s. We've had a good 60 50 to 60 years of integration. Right. All it took for this dramatic increase in hate crime. All it took for this dramatic explosion in open white supremacy was one presidential campaign to pull back the cover. Hmm. We really have to question how much progress had we made in those 50, 60 years? How sustainable was it when we know that from the time the Voting Rights Act was enacted, there had been actors who were working to decimate it, and they finally accomplished that in the 2013 Hmm. Supreme Court case Shelby v. Holder. So this is not anything new. This is a continuation. And, and we need to think about it in those ways, because if we don't, we will not have the depth of response. We will not have the depth of analysis needed to mount a response in a way that will actually, one, leave our society better off, two, let alone leaving us alive.
0: Larie, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate you talking to us about this today. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Up
0: next... There's the conventional wisdom that negative portrayals of individuals who then become stand-ins for groups, say, black people, serve to perpetuate stereotypes. But a professor of media culture at the College of Staten Island has a slightly different take. In a new book, she explores the idea that disreputable representations of black people in popular media can pose questions about blackness, black culture, and American society in ways that more respectable ones cannot. Her name is Raquel Gates, and her book is Double Negative, The Black Image in Popular Culture. We talked about it the other day. Here's that conversation. Raquel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's really my pleasure. Can you talk to me a little bit about Double Negative and the inspiration for writing it? Sure.
3: So Double Negative is an exploration of the subject of so-called negative images, Mm -hmm. and those are representations of black people that tend to get dismissed as being frivolous or stereotypical or trashy the types of things that people cite when they say this image is setting black people back mm-hmm. um, and so in the book what I wanted to do was do a critical exploration of those images and I actually argue that they can pose strategic questions about race gender sexuality politics and identity in American society right I, I try to tackle things that have been dismissed either from scholarly attention so the first chapter of the book is about coming to America because when I was researching coming to America for a different project, I couldn't find any scholarly writing about it, which I thought Mm -hmm. was sort of Odd, given how popular that film is and how often it is cited and referenced 30 years after the fact. Right. And the other thing I was interested in were these images, these representations like reality television and mm-hmm. trashy reality television right. that I argue were doing some incredibly subversive work in terms of depictions of women, depictions of masculinity mm-hmm. that they're not really being credited for because they are dismissed as being trashy. Talk to me
0: a little bit about that. Because I am I'm not a person who necessarily would watch a show like that and think like, oh man, I'm, I'm this is wrong. I'm putting something bad out there. I'm promoting something bad. But I am definitely a person who has watched certain episodes of those shows and been like, oh no, oh no, this is this is going to be a conversation. Like right. this is going to be a thing that people are talking about now. Right. And that sucks. Right. Do you think most people lie somewhere around where I am? Or do you think most people are like, No, it's negative across Mm -hmm. the board. Well, I think it's
3: complicated to give Mm -hmm. um, sort of an easy answer. Um, Right. But, you know, there's a reason that the cover of the book has Flavor Flav on it because part of it was really inspired by me watching The Flavor of Love and also following Flavor Flav's career resurrection on VH1 and and, Mm -hmm. and specifically with Flavor of Love, which got dismissed and panned everywhere as, you know, setting black people back. Um, And that's a whole other sort of issue that we can talk about. But Mm -hmm. what I thought was fascinating. Fascinating about Flavor of Love is that there was so much discussion about the the negative representations, the antics of the women on the show. Mm-hmm. And when you watch Flavor of Love, if you sort of pay attention to the formal elements of the show, the music, the mise en scène, it's very clear that it is a satire. It's a satire right. of shows like The Bachelor. Right. And to me, there's something very powerful about criticizing the idea that women should be competing for an engagement ring right. and flavor of love flavor of love is completely turning that on its ear and to me mm-hmm. that that is
0: very subversive in terms of gender politics right That's so interesting that you say that because not too long ago I was having a conversation with someone where that's essentially what I said was that I couldn't watch The Bachelor Mm -hmm. because it took itself seriously. But I could watch Flavor of Love, Rock of Love, charm school, you know, some of these shows that were on when I was in um, high school and college, when that really started to become like, I think like the birth of that coming out of real world. But even the real world took itself seriously, you know, and these shows were sat, and I got that immediately. And it never occurred to me that there were people who thought these were meant to be taken seriously. I think that part of that,
3: criticism of the shows is also selling the audience this short. I think that there's, a, there's an assumption that there's certain types of people who watch these shows, and mm-hmm. they're not being credited with being savvy viewers. Uh, Love and Hip Hop, to me, is, is a good example of that, where the assumption is that the people who watch a show like Love and Hip Hop or Basketball Wives, or I could throw in Mob Wives or any of the other shows on VH1, right. are people who don't get it or just watch it because they want to see the fights. Mm-hmm. And if you watch a show like Love and Hip Hop, which is constantly referencing the things that are happening, happening off camera and on Mm -hmm. social media because I believe those producers know that their audiences are keeping up with all of this extra textual information. The the audience for the show is incredibly savvy, incredibly media savvy. Mm -hmm. And to think that they're not reading the nuances of these shows I think is selling them short. Can you talk to me a little bit about formal negativity? Formal negativity, sure. So formal negativity for me, it's a concept I talk about in the book where there are certain structures in sort of classic Hollywood cinema Mm -hmm. that we equate with um, quality or a a film or television show being good. And Mm -hmm. one of those is, for example, the idea of the A-plot and the B-plot in a film. Mm -hmm. And so if you've seen, a romantic comedy is a good example of this, right? The A-plot is always the main characters, it's the love story, and the B-plot are sort of the the supporting characters where the comic relief happens. Mm So classic Hollywood cinema says that you pay attention to the A-plot. That's what matters. Now, a film like Coming to America complicates this because you have an A-plot and a B-plot. And it's complicated because Eddie Murphy plays roles in both the A-plot and the B-plot. And so what I argue is that the focus of the film is not as clear. And what you see when you study a film like Coming to America is that all of the lines that people cite, all of the scenes that people reference, they're all out of the B-plot, not the A-plot. Yes. Um, So an example uh, that I often cite is that Coming to America ends with this fairy tale wedding. That's mm-hmm. how you end a, you know, a Hollywood romantic comedy with the big fairy tale wedding. Right. But that's never what people reference. They always reference the failed engagement that Mm -hmm. happens in the beginning of the film.
0: Yeah, and And she's your queen to be. Absolutely. I mean,
3: in the book, I talk about the number of times that gets referenced. I mean, Snoop Dogg and his wife, they throw um, a Coming to America-themed birthday party for their son when he turns 16. Mm -hmm. Candy Burris on The Real Housewives of Atlanta models her wedding off of that engagement scene from Coming to America. Nobody references the fairy tale you know, actual wedding that happens. Nope. And if we're only sort of doing this through a conventional way of understanding film and media, we miss all of the really interesting things mm. that are happening and coming to America.
0: So there was a 2011 study called Media Representations and Impacts on the Lives of Black Men and Boys. Um, And basically the findings came to the conclusion that negative mass media portrayals were strongly linked with lower life expectations among black men. Now, I read something like that and I don't think what you've written refutes it. I just think it goes deeper. What do you think?
3: So I'm not able to talk to the findings of that study just because I'm not familiar with it. What I will say is, for me, with this book and in all of my research around uh, black popular culture, I'm not interested in causation as much as I'm interested in possibility. Mm. And that's what I'm really trying to explore in some of these texts that I'm analyzing. So I couldn't say that Watching a show or watching a representation in film causes somebody to to do that. My Mm -hmm. suspicion would be there's some correlation happening there, and there's probably other factors um, that we could be looking at. What I really want to get across with the book is the idea that that's not the only way of looking at these things. And so, you know, when I watch a show like Jersey Shore, Mm -hmm. uh, which is not in the book, but I'm a huge fan of Jersey Shore, right? um, Yeah, the people fight and they get drunk and they do all kinds of, you know, sort of so-called trashy behavior. But what I'm really struck by are the friendship bonds on that show, and there's something very relatable about that to me. Right. Or when I watch a show like Love & Hip Hop, I have never jumped across a table at somebody in, an, in a fight. <laughs> right. But there's something about having a space to explore all of these messy, complicated emotions that particularly women of color face right. that you don't get to see represented anywhere else really that mm-hmm. I think is incredibly cathartic um, mm. for
0: viewers. One of the things that I kind of want to ask you about is because I, I, whenever someone usually is writing about reality TV mm-hmm. and this aspect of reality TV, especially people of color in reality TV, it's usually just recaps right. that I've seen. It's just, this is what happened. And there mm-hmm. might be some funny commentary in there, but that's really about as far as it goes. Mm-hmm. I think this might be the first time I've seen writing that really digs into some of that deeper meaning and the experience of the viewer. What are you reading? that helps you, I mean, what helped you write this? Sure,
3: so there's a, a couple of things. I mean, first, it's it's my own viewing experience. Mm. One of the things that I'm interested in with these shows is that they're always talked about in terms of identification, right? Mm. That's sort of the fear, that's the criticism that young black girls will watch Basketball Wives and they'll ad- identify with these women and right. they'll want to imitate them, right? It's sort of right. a role model theory of, of media. Mm-hmm. And what I'm arguing for is the idea of empathy, right? Mm. Some kind of emotional empathy that that happens when you watch. And that doesn't mean identifying with the behavior or the specific characters, but mm-hmm. coming from a place of emotional understanding with what they are experiencing. Mm. So a lot of the situations in the shows that I watch might not be personally familiar to me. Right. But I completely understand that experience of being frustrated by a friend who's talking behind your back or Mm -hmm. trying to make something happen professionally and running into obstacles all over the place and interpersonal relationships and tensions you might have with a partner or somebody you love or with an ex or trying to make a relationship work Mm -hmm. um, when when things get really difficult. Or another thing that love and hip hop focuses on is women struggling to balance their personal and professional lives. Yes. Um, How are you able to be a mother while also pursuing your professional ambitions. Mm -hmm. And those are things that I think especially women of color can relate to um, that have not typically been depicted on television or in film.
0: What's the problem with quality discourses?
3: So what I would argue is that quality discourses tend to be very coded Mm -hmm. and in ways that we don't acknowledge. So quality is not an objective term. Quality mm-hmm. implies economic capital to make an image pretty. It, it means that you have the the money to buy good cameras and to mm-hmm. hire high quality crew who know how to shoot things and we tend to talk about quality as if it's just a thing that exists outside of those structures when it, mm. when it doesn't. Quality acting means you pay people their union wages, right? Or they have their SAG cards. All of those things are part and parcel of how we understand quality. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly quality I would argue is is often a way of talking about structures that we equate with white film and television so an example I always bring up is is the wire which I think is an amazing fantastic show but within film and media studies I've noticed that that is the black show that scholars always want to talk about and I've wondered if that isn't because it's also buffered by these markers of quality like the Mm -hmm. fact that it airs on HBO which is a prestige cable network
0: yep So what do you consider ratchet reality TV? Because for me, ratchet reality TV, I mean, I remember when love and hip hop first happened and I remember when the flavor of love first happened. And I remember when the flavor of love first happened being like, this is wild. (laughs) And I'm in, you know? But what about today? What's ratchet Mm -hmm. reality TV? You know,
3: I don't necessarily know that I have a definition of ratchet as much Mm -hmm. as I try to understand what the broader discourse is understanding as ratchet, right? Right, And so to me right now, ratchet reality television, which I would put in quotes, is all of the VH1 shows, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Basketball Wives, Love and Hip Hop, those types of things. Those are what I would consider to be ratchet reality television shows. But I think it's important for us to think about what does ratchet mean? Mm -hmm does it just mean poor behavior, or does it mean excessive behavior? Does it mean sort of self-aware performance? Does it mean behaviors that challenge conventional ideas of what a woman should be like on television?
0: I'm gonna say the latter um, (laughs) with that one. What would your students be surprised that you watch?
3: So I've taught a class on reality television. So they know. And I incorporate reality television into everything. They're always surprised that I watch Jersey Shore. They're always surprised <sighs> that I love Love and Hip Hop and that I've written and published on Love and Hip Hop. And there's usually wow. a funny moment where students come to my office to chat with me, and I'll always say, well, what do you like to watch? And they, they never want to admit it. Um, <laughs> I had one student just last week actually come in and say, what do you like to watch? She said, oh, I, uh, the, the really trashy stuff. I said, like what? And she said, uh, like Love and Hip Hop. I don't know if you watch it. I sat her down and I I opened up the New York Times on on the New York Times website and I showed her the piece on love and hip hop I had just published. Oh
0: my gosh. Were you like, girl, let me tell you about Lyrica and A1. Oh, I told her. I said, close the door,
3: (laughs) sit down, get comfortable. Let's chat about what's happening with Safari.
0: Right. In the 30 seconds we have left, how do all the people who are going to want to get your book now, how do they get it?
3: Okay, so you can buy it on Amazon. It's Mm -hmm. uh, double negative, the black image in popular culture. It's Mm -hmm. on Amazon. You can also buy it on the Duke University Press website. It's fantastic.
0: I hope everybody buys it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. That's the show for today. Please join us next week for a special conversation with New York City's new nightlife mayor. Can't wait. See you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Kritzi Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Boghossian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.